0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we have a very special episode for you. We are celebrating the 20th anniversary of the NAM oral history program. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts, I'm Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino,
1: and Ashley Allison.
0: All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org slash library. So welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We are very excited to be here. Um, the 20th anniversary of the Nam Oral History Program is this month, March 2020. The program started in March of 2000. And I think Dan is just so excited that he's hit
2: 20 years. <laughs> I just hope that during this podcast, neither of you tell me what you were doing 20 years ago. Is that fair? <laughs> Yeah. I promise. Yeah, I promise. <laughs> there was a little hesitation. <laughs> yeah, this is exciting. Thank you all for joining us uh, because a lot of passion, a lot of supporters, a lot of love has gone into this program over the last 20 years. And all three of us are very proud to be a part of it. And so today we want to celebrate it. So we're going to take a, a kind of an unusual twist to the regular M- Music History Project podcast in that playing a little less of a uh, Segments from the oral history collection and mostly just us kind of talking and celebrating the 20th anniversary with some stories and making sure we get our shout outs to all the people who made it possible.
0: Yeah, kind of the running joke is that this podcast episode could just be a million hours long us going through every single interview because they're all the best interviews
2: <laughs> absolutely I mean it's like picking one of your kids really as a favorite I mean I was just saying a minute ago before we started I wish we could list everybody's name and so for all the names that I don't mention I apologize because this is the collection we've made this collection based on the stories of the important people of our industry several of which we still have to interview and uh that's a good thing and those that we have already interviewed they're all part of the collection so this is just a representation of the celebration that's gotten us thus far so, I guess one of the things that uh, we really wanted to make sure we shared was how it all began and the. Um the story that I like to tell is in uh, 1996. The NAM board of directors got together and said, "Hey, we're getting ready to celebrate our 100th anniversary for NAM, which was founded in 1901." So they had five years to kind of get their uh, ideas together for a party and for this or that. And the two main things that they uh, agreed upon was creating a museum, which is now the Museum of Making Music, located in the NAM headquarters building in Carlsbad. Plug, plug, plug. Directly underneath us. (laughs) And the second was...
1: Carlsbad, California.
2: Thank you. Might be important. (laughs) Yeah, we don't want people driving around the desert trying to find it. Yeah, (laughs) nice. Um, And the second was to archive the history in a meaningful way and the, the, the history of the music products industry. And so what was, how that shaped up over time was basically uh, a resource center for which uh, officially started about the same time the oral history program did, and collecting one-on-one interviews. And the board of directors at NAMM uh, and Larry Lincoln, uh, who was the guy who hired me, uh, really had the vision of a set of people who were mostly the uh, movers and shakers of the music industry, their mentors, and the elder sort of statesmen of the industry at that point. So the very first goal was a list of, I think, 30 names that they came up with that included all the past presidents of NAM. So that was sort of my first task, was to get those guys. And then the next goal was the people meaningful to them, like Henry Steinway, who never ser- served on the NAM board, but did serve on the museum board. So uh, that was a really turning point, I think, for the collection simply because Henry was an amazing guy with an amazing history. So that interview was just like me realizing if I hadn't already, I've got my dream job. I can't believe I'm sitting here being paid to listen to this amazing history of how Steinway Piano Company got started and how it developed, the important people. But then at the end, Henry looked at me, and I think this is actually recorded as part of his very first interview. He said, well, if you're going to interview me, you really got to interview and then dot, dot, dot. I just took a ton of notes. He talked about dealers that were important to the company. He talked about old time dealers. Uh, factory workers that had been part of the company for 40 50 years who had just retired he talked about uh distributors he talked about uh, people in different countries and it really expanded my mind as to okay this isn't going to just be about who's important to the organization of NAM but who is important to the industry that NAM represents and that really became crystal clear to me at that moment and um And we've been celebrating that difference ever since. Yes, of course, we continue to interview the board members because those are the guys who make this program possible. Uh, They have great ideas. I wish I could name all of them, um, but they are the ones that have really gave me the education I needed at the very beginning, especially about dealers, especially about retired dealers, uh, stores that maybe had closed but had made a major impact on the industry. We're talking about people like the Grinnell Brothers and some of the big stores that really changed the way people shopped for musical instruments uh, during the last, you know, 50 or 60 years. So it was really kind of a neat turning point uh, for me as well, sitting down and having conversations and that not just about interviews, but, okay, who do you guys think we should interview? Um, and so that list uh, includes, of course, Larry Lincoln, Joe Lamond, who came a little bit later, uh, Paul Murphy, and all the past presidents of NAM that I was lucky enough to interview. And I just want to give a shout out to all of them and all of those who had helped us in those early days. Uh, Jerry Gorby comes to mind that really said, okay, this history is important to us. You know, one of the things that I've said um, before is um, when I was in school and I was studying to be something to do with research, I took a bunch of classes uh, about like... um, library research, you know, things like that. And I remember I took a class about uh, library um, marketing and they said, if you're gonna be into a, a library, public library or a specialty library like we have here at Nam, the one thing that you have to learn to do is market yourself because the very first thing that gets cut in budgets is the library. And so always market, always market, always market. Well, the one thing I have to say that's such a wonderful part about the music products industry is I've never had to do that. I've never once had to say why this is important. People come up to us, as you guys know, at the shows, everywhere. This is important. I'm so glad you're doing this. Hey, and by the way, you got to interview my first mentor. You know, I mean, constantly. And what a blessing that is. I mean, to all those people who have ever had an idea that you shared with us, we're grateful. That's the reason that this program is successful. Is because the people that you have told us are important really have been important. And we look back and say, my gosh, we've interviewed over 4,000 people that have changed the way this industry has been, how, how it's developed, how it has evolved, and how it's touched people. And, you know, it comes down to the passion for music, it comes down to the interest of making more music makers, teaching kids to play an instrument, all that passion is wrapped up in these interviews and it comes out because somebody gave me the idea. I didn't know any of these people before I walked in this door, but we know them now because of all the people who have given us those ideas.
1: So Dan, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your first interview that you conducted?
2: Well, the first interview I conducted was when I was a kid in radio. But the first interview that I conducted, <laughs> which I just...
0: is on the NAM website if you're interested.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Mike gave me a great birthday gift a couple of years ago by digitizing and adding all of my radio interviews to the Nam oral history program. So now every interview I've ever conducted is on the website. Thank you very much. Of course. P- plug, plug, plug for Mike. <laughs> um, but the first interview I conducted for Nam took place just a few months after I arrived. I arrived in 1998. Um, And in 1999 focused a lot on the opening of the Museum of Making Music, for which I was very blessed to be the first curator. And um, as that museum was getting underway and the wonderful staff downstairs um, started running running forward as they have been for the last 20 years themselves, uh, that gave me more time to focus on the reason I was hired, which was the oral history program and the resource center so it's ironic that the very first interview was conducted on the opening day of the museum of making music when one of the guests came by and i said oh my gosh this guy is really cool um bill walden was an original member of the Harmonicats, which was a great name of a band
0: it's beautiful in the
2: 1940s they had a bunch of hits pego my heart was their biggest one and they played the harmonicas. And uh, there, I think there were four of them in the original setup. Uh, his group that went on later had three. And he was on the Ed Sullivan show. I mean, it was like a big, big deal back in the day. And so he walked in with this tr- trench coat on because it was pouring out. And I'm like, uh, can I talk to you? So <laughs> do you mind, Mike, if we play a segment from that interview? Of course
0: not, no. So here's Bill Walden from the very first NAM Oral History interview, dated March fifth, 2000.
2: Well, tell
3: me who I'm standing with. Well, my name is Bill Walden, and I uh, started playing the harmonica when I was about eleven years old. Ended up working with the old Borominovich Harmonica Rascals, uh, with the uh, Harmonicats, and uh, I did all sorts of harmonica work. I worked actually from 1938
2: to 1956. Wow. Now, the Rascals turned into the Harmonicats,
3: right? uh, two of the boys that were with the Rascals left and formed a group called the Harmonic Ads. Right. And I joined the group. Mm-hmm. Uh, the big song that they had was Peg of My Heart. Right. That was a big thing and a little anecdote about Peg of My Heart. It was a song that was used as uh, behind a, a little comedy thing that we used to do. And we never thought anything about it, but at the recording date, uh, we were looking for another song to do. and. Someone said, well, let's just do Peg of My Heart. We were at Mercury in Chicago. And we recorded it. Well, what happened is the uh, when they started distributing it, the disc jockeys picked up the Peg of My Heart side, and it <laughs> the rest was history. Big hit, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah. Well, tell us your impressions of the museum when you went through today. Well, I was really impressed. I, uh, it's kind of a funny thing. We were just driving by here and saw the uh, your sign up front. Oh, neat. And, uh, parked over in the other parking lot and got on the shuttle, and
2: we said, we'll see what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're so delighted to have you come and join us, and I hear there's a rumor flying around that you might loan a harmonica or two to us.
3: Yes, I have a, I have a bass harmonica and a chord harmonica, and uh, that are just, as I said, gathering dust. I, I don't play them anymore. I play, play the instrument, but I don't play that particular way anymore. And I certainly like to see it on display as opposed to Great. And uh, the one instrument, the bass instrument, was the one that I played with the Rascals uh, when I started with them and for the time that length I, I was with them.
2: Wonderful. And it's still a good instrument. still plays. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you all coming out and joining us. You're quite welcome. Thank so. you. Okay, so that was the very first interview conducted for the Nam Oral History Program, and I'll tell you, we were just off and running at that point. We had such great support and help from so many people in the industry that the document in Excel that we lovingly call the wish list was born, and uh, it is now the bane of all of our existence, (laughs) but it's also our Bible and guides us to all the trips and all of the uh, people that we want to get to. So all the suggestions of everybody who has ever said, hey, you ought to interview that person, they're on the wish list or they've been interviewed. That's the way it works. So um, so there's so many people that were really important in the early days, including a, a segment of 10 people that over the years have been awarded the NAM oral history service award which uh our ceo joe lamon and i present every january at the nam show the very first went to george groon in nashville and i would like to read that list while we have a second uh not necessarily in this order but uh bernie cappuccino in australia um madeline crouch jim funata dennis Hoolihand, hap kuffner ernie lansford keith Mardak. Craig Smith, and recently Bob Wilson in the UK. These people have really gone above and beyond in helping us. And in addition to that, there are the recipients of the Believe in Music Award, which is also given out at the January Nam show. And these are folks that are too numerous to mention today. We usually give out about 12 every year. Um, But really, going above, again, not just saying, oh, okay, hey, you ought to interview this person, but more, hey, let me introduce you to them. Let me tell you where they live. Let me help connect you, and let me give you background information. This is why I think they fit perfectly into your collection. And having those people have your back, as it were, is a lot better than just going through and saying, oh, okay, this person is, you know, I've seen him at the show or I, I, you know, I've noticed that he's been in business for 20 years having somebody else say, but there's a reason why they are in business and they, you know, they were the first ones who pioneered this concept or whatever. And as a result, I, I just am so proud that the collection includes more than just what it originally was seeking, which is more than just the retailers. but, the people that work in the retail store that made a difference, no matter what their role was. The same with manufacturers, not just the presidents of the company, but the factory worker, the guy who does all the shipping, who was the one who was in charge of figuring out what models you can go where, and so on and so forth. I mean, if they played a significant part in the company's history they probably played a significant part in the industry's history and we want to interview them. And that means there's a lot of work to be done, but it also means that we get some amazing stories from amazing individuals. And so in the, in the vein of, um, thanking people, we're so glad that this expanded into international, um, territory in about 19, 19- 2005, I think, we started, okay, now we have the opportunity with the help of people in various countries to expand into a world sort of global oral history program.
0: And I think we have the perfect person lined up to talk a little bit about the NAM oral history program and its involvement with international... Territories, different countries, um, different continents, uh, and that is Betty Haywood, the director of international affairs for Nam. So here she is.
4: Well, I think first of all, it's a fantastic program, and congratulations to you, Dan, and the team who is making this happen. Um, I I thought when I first joined Nam fourteen years ago and uh, learned about the program properly, I thought it was a perfect program for um, for us as an international association for several reasons. Well, first of all. It's a um, it's a program that lets everybody be part of this association. So you 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 have a, a membership that is now also reflected in the oral um, history program, um, where it's not originally you uh, not only U.S. Uh, based members. Where of course originally and that's in our DNA, the the show um, the the association was originally U.S. based, but we've branched out. And we have members now from 105 countries or so and we have interviews from uh, members in many many places around the world so it had to be um, reflective of the membership and therefore i thought it was very very good that we branched out and included international um, industry representatives and then the other thing um, that i feel is also that as an international um, association there are certain benefits we cannot offer to our international members so the business benefits for example credit card processing, insurance and so on this is something that you can only as an association very often offer uh, only um, uh, to members who are uh, from the place you are based because credit companies are international but they operate locally Um, but this program is a benefit and a celebration of the global industry and everybody who hears this and who knows oh xyz from my country is represented and i can dig in and listen to people who were big players in the 50s and 60s and and so on in my country it makes them feel very very good and it really also makes them feel part of the association so i think it's for these two reasons that that it's important that we are international
2: well said i totally agree and i you know, greatly appreciate all of your insight. Any particular person come to mind as far as important to you that we were able to secure an interview with? Anybody come to mind?
4: Um, I think there uh, there are a, um, a a group of people. So, um, uh, you know, some of your early interviewees um, who um, was on the NAM board as well is a um, pioneer um, from KHS, Roussie, um, um, is one of them or the um uh, antonio monzini the the uh, monzini family who've been in the music industry since 1750 mm-hmm. and it's it's really really good to 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 have those people but also um people like rose sure who um, as far as i know has only ever given an interview about the history of the company herself um, and turned down everybody else but has given an interview to you, Dan, so that we have her voice telling the history of sure um, uh, uh, microphones. Um, so there's a whole variety, and it's not just international; it's it's from everywhere that that where, where it's important that we we have that history in their own voices. So. I think it's um you couldn't just pick anyone because you know and, and it's it's constantly expanding and I, I I'm glad that we're doing that and I know you're planning to go to other countries. Um oh that's another thing that I think is very important that um I know you are um doing a lot of interviews um alongside Summer Nam or the Nam show when there's a lot of people in town for the events. But particularly for those who are elderly, I think it's really important that we go to their uh, countries and to their places to, 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 to allow them to tell the story. Because a lot of them are retired, so I think it's a good thing that we're doing this. And we're very happy that we can do this, that we have the resources to um, invest in this. So it's a great program, and our international members absolutely love it.
2: Well, we're very grateful to you. I really appreciate you stopping by, and thank you so much for helping us celebrate.
4: Absolutely. Have will a piece there, of cake. I was going to say, will there be cake? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks.
2: Yeah, that was wonderful to hear from Betty. She's been a great supporter and really helping us with our own education here, trying to identify the important people. Like Tom Lee in Hong Kong first came to my attention thanks to Betty, who runs a music store and whose family still runs it. Uh, He'll be turning 100 years old, by the way, this very year, um, Mr. Lee. And so that, I think, was a quintessential moment for us in expanding into um, an international uh, perspective. And, of course, that reminds me of one of my favorite stories, if you don't mind me telling. Of
0: course not. I think one of the best parts of this job are the stories. and I I think (laughs) Ashley (laughs) can agree
1: with that. All (laughs) the (laughs) stories.
2: Okay, so my first trip to Hanover, Germany... I was so psyched to have an opportunity to interview the founder of Sennheiser microphones, Fritz Sennheiser, Professor Fritz Sennheiser, who was in his early 90s at the time. And gracious with his time, he allowed me to have an interpreter. He spoke in German. And I was so excited and not nervous but excited i got nervous after one little incident occurred which was i went over to him to put the lavalier microphone on him not realizing that i was about to interview mr sennheiser i put on a sure microphone yikes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh no,
0: <laughs> I've heard this story many times and it still hits me when you say that. No, still just, yeah, <laughs> goosebumps, the hair on the back of my neck, like oh no, it's in slow mo. Oh.
2: <laughs> well, he, you know, he had a, his glasses on the tip of his nose and looked down, What is this?
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh my goodness, I apologize. And he kind of chuckled. So, um, a couple of months later, I thought, okay, well, he was so gracious, and he continued with giving us a fantastic historical interview. I said, you know, we need to interview some of the people at Sure and the board of directors, um, the main person in charge at the time was Rose Shure, whose husband was one of the brothers that started the company, and so I asked for an interview. And strangely enough, in retrospect, many people from that company have come forward to say that the interview that i conducted with her is the only video interview that exists of mrs Schur, which is unbelievable to me but what a humbling experience that is and humbling just to say that so i went to her office and i told her the story about pinning a Schur microphone on <laughs> mr sennheiser and asked her if she would be so gracious as to pose for a picture a mock picture of me pinning a Sennheiser (laughs) microphone on her, for which she was very gracious and said, as long as nobody else sees it. (laughs) So I sent it off to uh, Mr. Sennheiser, who sent me back a seven-page, handwritten, both sides letter that started with how gracious and how wonderful this is. This is a prized possession. He won't tell a soul, but he loves the picture. And then went on to tell me things that he didn't tell me in the interview that were some of the challenges of getting the company started, some of the challenges of World War II, um, some of the credibility issues that they had in the early days um, of being a manufacturer in Germany, and things that were personal. And I was just very touched by the fact that uh, he had taken the time to do that. But uh, all based on the fact that, you know what? You make a mistake, you smile, and you apologize and hope that the uh, the world doesn't end. <laughs> you restored balance to the world. <laughs> that was a moment.
0: So I don't think it'd be possible to get any of these stories um, without the help that we receive from many of our supporters of the program. And Dan was talking earlier about people that helped us out in the beginning. Um, but nowadays... I know that it seems like it sometimes that it's just us three, but there's no way that we'd be able to do everything that we do just us three. We have a lot of people behind the scenes helping us out. Um, so Dan you want to mention some of the people that work with us
2: well thank you I would indeed it really is um, hard to mention one name because we're gonna miss a, a couple and I apologize for that but uh, we were really lucky in the early days because the museum of making music was starting about the same time that the program was so some of the volunteers of the museum also volunteered to help us namely a gentleman named uh, Tony Schmidt who was a huge jazz lover and And a wonderful gentleman who helped me on countless trips. We went to Chicago and Florida. We went, you know, road tripping around. He helped me with the camera and the lights. Um, and then when I was out of the office and somebody happened to come to town here in Carlsbad, he would conduct the interview for me. Wanda Jackson, uh, the the great rockabilly pioneer, comes to mind as one of many that he helped over the years. Um, I miss him deeply. He was a, a very important person to me personally. and. to the collection, as was Bob Hale, another volunteer of the museum who we lost just a year ago. Bob was another guy who uh, would go on vacation and film interviews for us on places that I wasn't likely to go anytime soon. And as a result, we got interviews with some of the early, early big band leaders like Del Courtney, who goes way back to the 30s, And, and other people like that, that just, I think, were really an important part of our collection. And they provided opportunities that we wouldn't have gotten without their uh, their help and um and then there were a couple of important staff members i basically want to say every staff member here at NAM has helped in some way without a doubt some in uh immeasurable ways and and some that um They don't even know how they helped, you know, just with an idea or mentioning somebody that, oh, that sparks an idea in our minds of some area that we haven't yet investigated. And I think those dialogues and those conversations and those meetings have been really important to shaping up so that we can properly say we are representing the entire industry. Um, And so I wanted to make sure that I mentioned that. So one very special staff member was... um, Eric Glassnap, who unfortunately has passed away and we miss him deeply. He really brought a great energy to the role that Mike now has of editing the interviews and creating the web clips and providing, as Mike does, his great perspective of telling the story. You know, conducting the interview is one thing, but then creating a clip out of the ten, or out of the hour-long interview, that's only five minutes long, to really be a great representation of that person, has to come from a passion, and and Eric had that passion, and Mike has that passion, and never before. Um, when Mike started, did we get so many compliments? You know, The web clips I created, nobody really said, oh, that's great, that really represents me. But I think since Mike has a background in this industry, he grew up in this industry. His dad owns a music store and probably his earliest memories is crawling around, right? Yep. <laughs> Mike gets it. And I think that that is a very important element. And I guess that's really what I want to try to convey is that some of these people that have touched us uh, Eric and, and Bob Hale and, um, and so many others had their own unique take on being able to express that passion. And because of that, we were able to bring out The passion of those that we interviewed in one way or another, either by conducting the interview or by editing the interview. And I think that is really one of the reasons why we've been successful is because we have been able to translate that love that they have for our industry into the the web clip that we have so many other people to, um, to shout out, but I want to say that uh, we have a great volunteer staff that includes Suzanne Glassnap and Um, her passion for getting the shot just right. You know, I never really cared about what was in the background. I just was always focused on arriving at the person's home or store and saying, okay, let's get this story. I want them to talk about this. I want to talk about that. Oh, they met this person. We got to talk about that. And I would just set up the camera and then hope that there was something usable when we got back to the office
0: (laughs) not the greatest way to do it but okay it worked
2: for a while it worked (laughs) what we needed is somebody who paid attention to all of that because i did not and she certainly does and i think those shots that she has provided certainly show that uh, Alex Rosner is another one who has always been very good about giving us the perfect background. He's also our trainer. He's the guy who comes in and shows us the latest in lights and backdrops and kind of helps us understand better ways of making sure that what we want to preserve, we're preserving in a, you know, a, 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 a professional way. And, um, and then just so many other people, you know, there's um, Graham down in Perth. Australia got us an interview with Hank Marvin. I always wanted a shadow mm-hmm. in our collection and now we do. Uh, uh, Greg Phillips and Rob Walker also in Australia and and so many others. Paul McManus in the UK, people have been overwhelmingly, supportive and open to helping us. If I had an idea, hey, do you know how I can get a hold of this person? Dennis Houlihan would find a way of finding that person, uh, and so many others. So um so the, the last part I wanted to say about about the supporters before we move on to some fun stories is that we need your help. That's how this is gonna continue far past us is we need the ideas. We need the people who are passionate about this industry who represent a segment that needs to be told.
0: Yeah. And if you do have any ideas to send our way, you can always email us at library at That goes directly to all three of us and we can help figure out how to find a person. If you've got an idea or you know where someone is, it's, it's greatly appreciated if you could share that info with us.
2: So speaking of supporters, let's play a little segment from one of our volunteers, Suzanne Glasnap.
5: So I'm Suzanne, and I've been working with Dan since April 16th, 2016. I'm one of his main camera people along with Mike. Hello. Hey, hey. (laughs) And so our first interview was in Berkeley, California at Subway Guitars with a founder, Fat Dog. And so that was almost a little more than four years ago. Wow. Yeah. So that's kind of, that was kind of special. And it was a very memorable interview. He was quite the character. And we were there for a while. And, you know, looking back, it was a good experience. And I'm glad that my first interview was a memorable interview. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Um, One of the benefits of this program to me is I'm a really big animal lover. And so very often we're invited into people's homes to. Um, conduct the interviews. And I always love meeting their pets. Mm -hmm. And I also, I think I have a good way with animals and usually most dogs and most animals like me. So when there's like a growling dog or barking at the other side of the door, I usually go in first and tame it. So hopefully HR won't listen to that part. <laughs> um, <laughs> recently, we were in Nashville doing interviews, and we had an interview a little outside of Nashville, and the owner actually came outside to meet us before he let us in, and he had an extra-large dog, like a Mastiff, or I don't remember exactly what he was, and he warned us, you know, you don't put your hand out like you normally do to let a dog sniff you, um, and he's only bitten three or four people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's all. That's all. That's so. all. Good luck.
5: <laughs> so we just kind of went in and had our hands to our sides, and but it, it loved us very quickly. So luckily we didn't get bitten, and then it went upstairs, and that was fine.
2: Well, you, you make it, <laughs> that environment so comfortable. You know, this is an element that I just did not focus on. We talked earlier about how I am just so focused on the content of the interview. I don't necessarily think about the backdrop, but I also don't necessarily think about – Um, making the person as comfortable as you do when you approach their animals. I mean, anybody who has a pet, you know that you love it when somebody else asks you about it, or may I pet them or whatever. And I think that disarming uh, approach that you have has been fantastic.
5: On that note, I'd like to tell a cat story. This is kind of one of my favorite memories, actually. We were very lucky to get to interview John Kay, lead singer of Steppenwolf, and he invited us into his home, beautiful home. And when we were leaving, I saw sort of off to a side room, a cat bed with a cat in it. And I don't even think I asked permission. I think I just abandoned the gear and made a beeline for the cat. (laughs) And when I got close, I could see it was kind of an elderly cat and it didn't get up. And I bent down and petted it, and it liked to be scratched on its chin. And, you know, we were having a good time. And I looked back over my shoulder, and John Kay was watching me with the sweetest little smile on his face, watching me give his old cat some love. And it was just such a little (laughs) special moment. You know, Mm -hmm. he was like, you know, a normal person there. Um, so that was kind of a special memory and we're also often go to music stores of course to conduct interviews and there's frequently been a dog that's um, kind of the mascot and my first one was Perry the Basset Hound <laughs> Aww. Aww. <laughs> and he's great he's in a music store in California and he's their official greeter to make people feel relaxed and welcome and we had such a good time we actually filmed Perry a little bit at the end and his owners got him howling and so Perry <laughs> has his own web clip <laughs>
2: that's right under
5: the keyword tag dog <laughs> and so you get to see Perry and I just actually looked under this tag the other day and there's about an equal number of people and actual dogs under the dog tag. So there's there's Fat Dog, the you owner know, of Subway. And there's Swamp Dog, and then there's Perry and a couple other store dogs. So that was really fun. Um I'd like to talk about one more or two more dogs. We interviewed Frank Baxter of Piano World in Maine and he was arranging a few other interviews for us while we were there. And he lived in such a remote area he insisted that we stay with them for a couple of days, which was really nice and it was a really nice time. And he had two adorable little dogs mm. that would go out in the snow through the doggy door in the morning. <laughs> and it was just it was a very, very special time.
0: Was the snow over the dogs' heads? Yes. These, oh, that's these great. were little white fluffy dogs. <laughs> oh, that's and awesome. I
5: was very proud that they actually went and used the doggy door and didn't sneak off to a corner like <laughs> i would have yeah. if yeah. i had to go out in the snow <laughs> <laughs> you see something like jumping through the yeah, snow yeah. Yeah. A bit. <laughs> um, and sometimes we do form a connection with the people through their pets mm. and we'll interview someone and then like one example you know a couple months later dan will get an email or a text and we heard like sadie Has cancer, Mm. so of course he shouldn't tell me that because then I cry a little bit. And then we just recently heard that Sadie is (gasps) cancer-free now after treatment. Yay! Yay. Shout out for Sadie. So while we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the oral history program and congratulating Dan and everyone else involved, I had my own little milestone at the recent NAMM show in Anaheim. Oh. I surpassed my 500th interview. Wow. Yay, that's Jamie. a big deal. Thank that's you. awesome. Dan, how
0: long Thank did, you, Dan, so how long did it take you to get to 500 interviews?
2: I, oh, that's a really good question. I'm going to say probably like four or five years oh, wow. yeah okay. I think it took a while Very impressive. congratulations and thank you so much for all your help
5: you're welcome you're welcome so I, I just have a couple more cat stories please um, a couple of years ago um, we interviewed a series of DJs at the Scratch Academy in Greenwich Village and while we we're interviewing the original Spinderella um, I came up with my own DJ name because that's the best part of DJs are their names. Absolutely. And so being an animal lover, I decided my DJ name is DJ Cat Scratch. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Now I just need to become a DJ.
4: (laughs) It's not that important. (laughs) It's not that hard? You got the most important part. (laughs) Uh,
5: And then one more kitty story that I wanted to tell and we'll see how this one works out is last year we were very fortunate enough to interview ally willis in her home Mm. and very very special person very colorful character wild crazy house that should be a museum and she had two kittens that she had recently adopted from a rescue. And one was a beautiful little calico girl named Coco. And I don't remember the other kitty's name, but it had a little mustache. <laughs> <laughs> and they were just adorable. And you could tell Allie was in love with them. And we took pictures together of me holding the cats. And it was a very, very special time. Mm. And so um, unfortunately, tragically, unexpectedly, we lost Allie this December. Um, which was a horrible shock and really the downside of this job. Uh, and so I'm certainly hoping one of her good friends adopted both kitties together. But um, that is one of the really hard parts of the job. And, mm. of course, that's Dan suffers you know, with that more than any of mm-hmm. us, yep. all the people he's known and met. And you kind of wonder if it's worth it, but, of course, it is because you've made these connections. You've at least gotten to meet and know these people. And, you know, their stories are preserved forever, so... But I wanted to talk about, Allie, because that was a tough one for
2: me. Mm-hmm. Thank That's you funny. so much for sharing.
0: So once again, that was Suzanne Glassnap. She is a volunteer with us here in the Resource Center at Nam, helping us get those great shots.
1: One of my favorite stories that I've heard so far is uh, the excellent placement of a vase in the <laughs> shot that really tied the whole <laughs> shot together.
0: Yes. Yeah. That was a group of interviews in the UK, I believe, that Dan and Suzanne did. And um, if you look through our collection, you, you'll find the, the red vase and it, the does vase. Look, it does look really good. She
2: went trolling around the hotel until she found something that you put in the back. <laughs> background. It was fantastic. Well,
0: I think that's a perfect segue into just the memorable moments that happen in the oral
2: history program. Well, I was thinking about what what would I want to include in this collection in the early days, and I keep thinking about that, and I think that's my challenge to most people that I talk to about this. What is it that we want to include? Not just who, but the stories, the innovations, and um, and to me, one of the most important things in the early days was an interview with Al Kahn, who was living um, on a lake in Michigan, in, in southern Michigan, and Tony Schmidt and I drove up to his house, he was in his early 90s at the time, and I It was important to me because this was, as we were expanding and saying, we're going to interview more than just um, music retailers, which is very important. But um, this was sort of the dawn of wanting to include Pro Audio, which of course is now a major segment of the NAMM organization. But at the time, it really wasn't part of the collection. And so to expand in that direction, I thought, Let's get the founder of Electrovoice, EV. So we went to his house and it was so fantastic. I mean, he was so, he just wanted to talk about ham radio and you know, in the early days of of electronics. And then he told me the story of how the company got its name, Electrovoice. He said, and I believe it was about 1925 or six, he had a small um, public service uh, company that had these PA systems that were basically speakers on polls that he would go to big events and um, allow bigger audiences to hear a commencement speech or something like that. And so um, Newt Rockne was the coach there in Notre Dame and um, asked if, if Al could show up with his speakers and help him project his voice he was kind of elderly at the time the, the legendary football coach and so they put a scaffolding up for him to uh, if you can picture this this large field that basically had four football fields and he was in the corner of all four where they all four connected so that he would look at one football field and coach those guys and then turn and coach the second and third and fourth and while he did that al would be there with the speakers and rotating them so that the football players in each of the fields could hear them um and so this went on for a whole day and uh, newt rockney was a little tired at the end of the day and as they're taking him off the scaffolding he says you know what I don't know what I would do without my electric voice. Oh, like that? Oh, there it is. That was, I mean, that was a moment I'll never forget. That was fantastic. So on the way back, on the drive back to the airport, Tony Schmidt and I were thinking about, wow, that was fantastic. What else do we want? And we kind of pictured a few things that I'm so glad to say that over time we have been able to interview, like an old blues guy on his porch just playing his instrument and and telling us stories. You know, we've done that with John D. Holman. Um, You know, factory workers that, Maybe all they do is put the pads in the flute, but they did it for 40 years, and they're the experts at it, and they can tell you all about it in great detail and with great love. And, you know, uh, store owners who would give an instrument to a child for the first time and hear them make a sound for the first time, there's no better story than that. There's no better story than that. And those were the stories that Tony and I were kind of picturing that we would would one day be able to have in their collection um, and some of the old-time um, music publisher engravers who would actually have those lead plates and carve into them the notes that would then be transferred into a piece of paper for sheet music. We got to interview some of those guys. Um, and I mean, on and on it goes. We The more we pictured what would be sort of historical and important for us, the more we were able to do that because it allowed us to focus. And I'm so glad we did. We collected as many stories as we possibly could. Possibly could about how the industry was affected from World War II, for example because a lot of those guys were still around when we first started this collection and we've been able to interview people like um, Anna Sepulvic who worked at Wurlitzer as Rosie the Riveter they really gave her a riveting machine and that's what she was supposed to do during World War II. she was an employee of Wurlitzer but they were working on things for the war effort and I mean how cool is that so I, it's kind of the more we dreamed, the more we were able to um, capture. And I, I'm very, very pleased that we over time were be, were able to, um, to capture those moments while we still had the opportunity.
0: I think the oral history program here at NAMM is such a great asset to everyone in the music products industry and outside of it, because it gives you such an insight onto the relationships that are forged within this industry. And it's kind of crazy because, you know, I grew up in a music store and I've been in this industry pretty much my whole life. And I saw firsthand how people would come in the store so often that you just kind of create these relationships with whether it was reps or manufacturers mm-hmm. or or anybody really. And right. I saw it develop firsthand, you know, they became part of your family really. And I feel like the oral history collection uh, that Dan is doing and it's part of Nam, is that you're doing yeah that we're all doing I guess <laughs> I feel like the oral history program has really created that same kind of environment online and in the video interviews just these relationships and how everything in the products industry is connected and all the people really know each other you know it's 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 a big industry but it's really small mm. and I think the program sheds amazing light on that and I'm really happy to be part of it, and i'm I'm glad I get to work with such great people every day and get to watch such amazing interviews every day.
2: so has was there ever uh, a moment when you were helping us capture an interview where you thought, wow, this is this is history? I mean, that we're listening to, something really important here?
0: I mean, yeah, almost all of them. (laughs) I mean, it's hard to (laughs) pick just one. But, I mean, interviewing amazing musicians like Slim Jim Phantom or or Sugarfoot, drummer for Michael Jackson, and just hearing them tell the stories firsthand, Mm -hmm. that's amazing. But then going back and listening to heads of companies like Hartley Peavy or, I wasn't involved with it, but the Jim Marshall interview or George Fullerton and just hearing the guys that started these great products that are so well-known now. And, it's, it's amazing. It's There's nothing else like it out there.
2: You know, one of the things I wanted to add, if I may, is there, it takes a lot of drive to do this. And I know that you both have drive um, and passion for this project. And I think that I wanted to just share with you something that was particularly meaningful to me when my son Jonah was about six or seven years old. We were talking about jobs and going to work, and how I always have a smile on my face when I go to work, and and what was my drive, what was my passion, and he said very innocently, as six-year-olds often do, kind of cut it right to the chase, and he said, so, you like your job because every week you get to meet a new friend. And Mm -hmm. I said, yes, that's it, that's exactly (laughs) it, and that's that's my drive, and I think um, this industry provides that opportunity everywhere we go.
0: Yeah, it's pretty crazy how you're really just taking the industry and recording it. It it's I it sounds stupid to say, but like that's what it is. Mm. Like these conversations would be happening whether the camera was there or not, and so
2: it's just great that we have them preserved for ever. So Ashley, tell us about your thoughts on the oral history program.
1: Uh, well, being still fairly new to the program, um, I don't have all the amazing stories like Mike and Dan do. But uh, I find it so fascinating to listen to these stories and all these little details and little ideas that people had at one point and then just how much it can grow and become such a standard in the industry of just, oh, hey, we wanted to, you know... The style of the guitar is like this because it was made things easier, and Mm. then all of a sudden now it's this huge. (laughs) Everyone knows about it, and it's just great hearing all those little stories from either, you know, really large companies and people that you know, or people that you don't know but that had such a huge impact. Uh, I think it's just amazing to be able to capture all of that and and save it for the archives and for people to hear it down the road. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I'm really excited to start being part of the interviews a little bit more and, and being able to actually have real examples. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> great my that's, experience.
2: That's a great experience. I mean, a good perspective to have because it, it takes, you know, a whole team to do this. And I'm glad that I on the team with you guys same here
1: same here
0: oh one big happy nam family (laughs) and i think now is a good time to hear from another voice uh elizabeth dale used to be on this podcast used to work in this department until she moved away and crushed our dreams (laughs) so here she is talking a little bit about the oral history program
6: hey guys so thinking about the 20th anniversary of oral history it's crazy um i only got to work with Dan in the program for a couple of years, but it was really meaningful and kind of set the foundation for how I now work in my new role uh, in public relations and the way I interact with people when I have the joy of interviewing them. Thinking back, probably one of my favorite memories would have to be. Oh man, it's just so hard to choose. Geez. Um. I don't know. I mean, I've told the story in previous podcasts about getting to meet Jim Horn and then him coming in for the interview later on, which is always my favorite. And we won't retell that. You can go back and listen to it, if you like, under our favorite web clips, I believe. Um, But probably new story. Ooh, Put me on the spot. Um, I think when we interviewed Graham Nash, that was one of my first that I got to be a part of. And he was appearing... For in conjunction with a museum gala, and he came to the offices there. And this is someone that I had heard his music growing up. My parents were big Crosby, Stills, and Nash fans. Um, They were a little bit starstruck for me when I told them that we were going to have the opportunity to speak with him. And that was probably one of the first big names I had met through the job. And uh, you know, you meet these people and they're just so nice and beyond that Dan just has this ability to kind of disarm them to some degree you kind of assume that they're going to be these celebrities are going to be closed off and private and short-winded and but Dan no matter if it's someone like Graham Nash or a retailer or music educator any area of the spectrum, he is able to get them to really open up. And I just found that so captivating, not only being in the room with this icon, but seeing the process. And it really opened my eyes to the fact that what Dan does in the oral history program is a very well-oiled machine. He's used 20 years to hone his craft to be an expert. And you kind of, if you work with him long enough, You kind of learn which questions are the staple questions and how to use those as a springboard to then get people to open up even further. And I've seen Dan work magic interviewing people, and he's gotten content that I don't think any other – historian, journalist, media entity has ever gotten from people. And I just think that that's why this program is so critical and vital and hope it continues for at least 20 more years, if not longer.
2: Okay. So the question I'm asked the most is who's your favorite interview? And that's almost impossible to say, as we said earlier, I'd love to name every person we've ever interviewed for this Uh, podcast today. But the standard answer I always give, as you guys have heard a million times, is Scotty Moore, who was Elvis's guitarist, because I grew up an Elvis fan, listening to that guitar knowing that was not Elvis, that was somebody else. (laughs) But the documentation on the back of my records never said who it was. So when I finally found that name, I was so proud. Every time we'd come on the radio, I'd say, oh, there's Scotty Moore playing guitar. And when I finally got a chance to meet get to know him and interview him my gosh that was definitely um a a relationship i'll never forget but i do want to say for this 20th anniversary podcast that there is a handful of other people that mean just as much to me as that um like henry steinway we met earlier i mean can you believe i got to interview pete Seeger? i mean the guy revolutionized folk music in this country Mm -hmm. and change the way people listen to music even to today. And I got to sit and interview him. I mean, Kitty Wells, who was the first sort of uh, the queen of country music, the first female to have a recording contract on her own for country music. I mean, uh, unbelievable. Uh, Sam Hinton, who went around in um, in the 1940s recording songs uh, that were up in the hills of Tennessee and Kentucky and went down to um, Texas and just wanted to capture those folk songs that would otherwise be lost today if it had not been for him, and then to hear him tell me all those stories about the wonderful people that he met, and then realizing that he's one of the wonderful people that i met and you know it's kind of like that six degrees of separation like wow you know how close was i to all of those uh, amazing folk players uh during that important time al bell is another guy who was uh, the owner of Stax records who was a songwriter and who knew martin luther king i mean wow i can't believe i was this close to talking to a guy who talked to martin luther king i mean Time and time again, I just found uh, myself in this position of meeting some very incredible people. As you can tell, this is why I wanted to mention everybody that we've ever <laughs> interviewed.
0: I'm actually kind of surprised that you didn't try to name everybody and <laughs> just have, start, have, start jumping in about and so now I think it's time to hear another new voice. Um, we recently just heard from Elizabeth Dale, who used to be on this podcast and work in this department. Now let's hear from Michelle Shedler, who also used to be on this podcast and worked in this department. So here she is talking a little bit about the 20th anniversary of the Oral History Program.
7: Hey, everyone. My name is Michelle Shedler. I am the former Oral History Coordinator and Archivist here at NAM. Um, I think the Oral History collection is super amazingly important. And I think the best representation of the importance is the fact that just the other day, an oral history got used for a memorial service for one of our members and how important it was for people at that service to see a video of someone that they love telling a story about what they love to do. And I think just that right there shows how important this collection is and why we do what we do. My favorite part is just, you know, calling all the people and hunting them down and organizing those interviews and finally getting the opportunity to meet them in person and understand that each person is so great at what they're known for, but they have so many different aspects of them as a human and getting to know those other aspects has just been super rewarding.
2: While we were listening to Michelle talking, there was about 20 other things I wanted to say. (laughs) So, no, just kidding. Um, I do want to say that it's a a blessing to work with you guys. Thank you for all your passion and your love for this industry and for your guidance in um, making me uh, realize that I can't do 500 interviews a day, but I'm gonna
0: try. You can definitely try. I'm (laughs) gonna try.
2: You know, when I was a kid, I remember I read this book uh, about jazz history, and they talked about the evolution of the jazz trumpet, Louis Armstrong being the first, Roy Eldridge coming along, Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, and a clear lineage of how one sort of started the style and learned from that one, and then went on to the next one, and it grew and developed. And I love that imagery, and I think that we have time and time again been so blessed to be able to do that in this collection. And then just one example of that is the steel pedal guitar. You know, we interviewed arguably the the founder of its popularity, Alvino Ray, who had a big band in in the 1930s, and Speedy West and Buddy Emmons And just recently, we interviewed uh, the guy who's carrying on that torch today, Paul Franklin in Nashville. It's amazing to me to see that lineage. And we can do that with almost every instrument now. And we can do that with almost every major company in the industry now. And I'm very, very proud of that. I just hope, and the goal that I have is that we continue to focus on that. Because that lineage, we have the foundation to build on. And I'm very excited about the future because I think that's exactly where we're going.
0: What a beautiful way to end this podcast. We thank everyone who stopped by to listen thank you for subscribing and following us on whichever platform you listen to this podcast on um, if you have any ideas for future episodes please shoot us an email at library at nam.org other than that we will see you again in two weeks Buh-bye. Bye bye hi Bye bye thank you for listening to the music history project this has been mike mullins dan del fiorentino
1: and Ashley Allison.
0: If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at librarynam.org.